You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We are so glad you're here with us today. My brand new friend, Reward Sebanda, is with us today. We met at a conference a couple weeks ago. At dinner, I heard one of the most incredible stories about what this man had to go through to actually be able to marry his wife. It's part of the Zimbabwean culture. And we're going to hear about that. He is originally from Zimbabwe, but is now based in Dallas, Texas, and has just become a dear friend overnight. So we're going to talk about some of his just incredible stories of life today as someone from Zimbabwe. But we're also going to talk about leadership because this guy spends a lot of his time in leadership development and so, Reward, we are so thankful to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. Tommy, man, thank you so much for having me, my brother. It is such an honor to be here. Well, I'm going to start by saying you may have the greatest voice we have ever had on this show. In fact, not may. I'm sure you do. So, listeners, you're- I appreciate that. You are in for a treat today. And, you know, Reward, we call this show Beyond the Ordinary. And as you and I were having dinner and I was hearing this story about what you had to go through to marry your bride, Mm -hmm. I was just like, oh my gosh, that is beyond the ordinary. You know, people ask me all the time. So I married the daughter of a really well-known pastor in our community. And so people will ask me all the time, what was it like (laughs) to ask this pastor if you could marry his daughter? And true story, the third time went really well. (laughs) So I love it. My story is a little bit beyond the ordinary. And, you know, the first time I was 18 years old. The second time I was in the hospital, had a major concussion. And so I didn't even know what I was saying. And I repeated it over and over to this man for four hours straight. Every five minutes, I asked him if I could marry his daughter. And then a day later, I didn't remember any of those. (laughs) So, you know, really, it may have been my like hundredth time really well. But your story is way beyond the ordinary. And so if we can start there, I want our listeners to hear this. And you have such an incredible bride. It's awesome to hear all about her and what a huge part of your life she is. But yeah, the process, the process (laughs) you had to go through to get there is just uh, beyond the ordinary. So take us through this process, start to finish. Man, Tommy, thank you so much for that. First of all, man, I just want to commend you for two things specifically. See, I think our sociology, right, is is sacred. I think where we come from, right, our backgrounds, and uh, I think we're uniquely gifted that so we can reach other people. And what I love the most about you and your heart, man, is the fact that you're postured in person and, you know, by proxy through this podcast, to just gather the things which you celebrate in the cultures of other people, in the experiences of other people. And then you're like, hey, let me share this with the world. So if you're listening to this, you are in the presence of greatness because Tommy is an OG, man. And the way he started asking me the questions, 
It was in such because because when, when you talk about culture, right, Tommy, it's a sacred thing, right? And people hold that closely. But when you get around people that you can tell celebrate the nuance and the diversity of our cultural backgrounds, man, it just makes you want to open up. So it is such an honor to come on here, man, to share this part of my story with you. And it begins uh, with my originating context. So I am uh, from Bulawayo in Zimbabwe, right? I am from the Ndebele tribe. And the Ndebele is a uh, subdivision or basically even our language is a subdialect of the Zulu tribe, right? And the Zulu tribe comes from the Bantu. The Bantu are almost like an ethno-linguistic group of people. And ethno-linguistic essentially means that the language, the mannerisms are built around the language. So it's not genetics that bind or group these people together. The language is at the center of it. Kind of like when you talk about Slavic, Slavic people, they all come from different places within Europe and there's nuance to their cultural expression. But the unifying factor right at the center of that is their language. So the exact same thing is true about the Bantu culture. Now, I'm going from the macro perspective to bring it down. So when we start getting to all the craziness, people are like, are these people for real in 2022? We're still selling people? No. I want you guys to understand the value systems that inform the decisions of the culture so that as we go forward, right, people are like, oh, that makes sense. Now, coming back it down. So the Bantu, right, it covers about... A significant, let me put it that way, significant part of, of the African continent. And so you will find that at the center of every ethno-linguistic community, like the Bantu, are specific value systems. And those value systems inform everything that that specific culture does. So, for example, in West Africa, the in Ghana, the Akan people who speak Twi have this thing called Sankofa. And Sankofa is essentially the operational philosophy of that particular culture. And Sankofa means go back and get it, return and get it. And even the sign for that, it's like a bird, right? A bird that is sacred in the Akan community looking back and getting an egg because for them, wisdom, right, from ancients, from people that have gone before is the operational value within their culture. Now, within the Bantu, there's something called Ubuntu. And Ubuntu is a social philosophy, Tommy, that speaks to the simple fact that a person's humanness, the essence of their humanness is their communal contribution, what they bring to the community specifically, right? That's what made me so interested in leadership, but more on that here in the end. So based on that, at the core of that, if you deconstruct that, is honor. So I come from a highly honor-driven culture, Right. Everything about that is essentially about honoring the other person. So Reward, when we talk about your tribe, the Ende Valle, give our listeners some context of how large of a people group are we talking about and some context of when this split of the generals occurred and they crossed the Limpopo and you know settled in what we now know as Zimbabwe. Yeah. Oh, no. So we're talking about right now in modern day Zimbabwe, we're talking about 2.5 million people that represent that tribe. It's the second largest ethnic group within Zimbabwe. And all this, all this goodness, the split happens in the 1800s. Around 1836 is where all this, the melting pot, everything kind of comes to head and everything. So 
yeah, crosses over to Zimbabwe and then settles amongst the Shona tribes and then through conquest just begins to increase and to cement its footprint in the capital in Zimbabwe, which is called Bulawayo, which is a very <laughs> a weird name because Bulawayo means the place of slaughter. And it bakes into that the historic context of how the Ndebele people then put a footprint, entrenched their rule on Zimbabwean society. So that is my cradling context. And that's essentially where I come from historically. But the really cool thing about that is that honor is what bound the people together, right? The operational ethos, the core philosophy, it is a high honor, high shame culture. And it's got a lot of colorities with like when you look at Asian cultures, which are high shame and high honor cultures, you see a lot of that like nuance and process is huge when it comes to families. So fast forward to four and a half years ago, right? When this man finally comes of age and decides it is time for him to marry. And so I go to a conference and someone introduces me to this man who is from my tribe, Mr. Mpande. And uh, he has done really, really cool things. So this man came to the U.S. to learn leadership and to build leadership structures. And he goes back and he teaches leadership in the Zimbabwean context and he builds a healthy, but his angle is through churches. So what he does is he builds churches and then he trains people in leadership through that. And so we, because we are both students of leadership and because we love leadership, uh, we just struck up this friendship. And I still remember after about two months of him mentoring me and me calling him and pestering with all those questions about leadership, he makes a very nonchalant statement out of politeness because this would never fly within the Ndebele or the Zulu culture. And it's like, oh, you went to CFNI Institute. You know what? I have a daughter who goes to CFNI as well. So if you're ever in Dallas, you should connect with her. And now he didn't tell me, listen, man, he didn't tell me how long I should have made the connection. So when I was there, I went on her DMs and I stalked her and I still remember going, hmm, not bad at all. So when I went to Dallas, I connected and I was like, oh my goodness, this is going to be my wife. I'm falling in love with this girl. So then it begins the process which I was coming from because the moment you like someone, right, you owe the family. You owe the family. What do you owe the family for? So everything within Debele context, Tommy, speaks to the fact that if you have a daughter, Tommy, do you have a daughter? I do. I do. Okay. Basically. So in the Debele context, you are raising your daughter for some guy. Like you're not raising yourself a daughter. You're raising another man a wife. So everything about that, who she is, right? is you're teaching her how to add value to the husband that is coming in the future, right? And so that's what happens. At the end of the day, though, like every dime you put into her, right, everything, that guy that you're raising the wife for is going to have to honor you by paying you back for what that essentially looks like. So when I found out that I was starting to fall in love with this woman, I knew we had come to the moment to where I would have to honor the dad, so at that moment, because to make it a fair process, I cut off every communication with him culturally. And now all my communication was with his sister, which was Pam's aunt, right? Because all the communication now, and I'm going, hey, I really believe I am falling in love with this woman. So I would love for you to be my go-between, to go and tell your brother and as the aunt, since you were instrumental in raising this woman, that someone else has taken an interest and would like to honor you guys for raising 
this woman for him, basically. And so that's where the conversation started. I think what intrigued you, Tommy, was when I was telling you that. So I got my family involved. I got my brother and a spokesperson. And we went to negotiate. Some people call it the bride price. And that's essentially what it's called. But the heart of that is honor, right? You're honoring this man who raised your wife for you. And so when we went there and when you show up, right, you're just like, it's almost like you're a stranger. So you're like, hey, we would like to strike up a conversation. And they're like, well, everything is calculated in cattle, but because it's modern day. So if we were in the Zimbabwean context back in the day, right, when I am growing up, when I'm raising my father's cattle and everything, he gives me my own cattle because that's what I'll use, first of all, to honor the family that I'm going to marry for their wife, but also to start right? That's my seed money for my family that I'm going to be starting. So the first thing is like, they're like, hey, we want to strike up a friendship. They're like, oh, well, that's going to be a cow, for example, for you to come into there. And then we're like, okay. So we write it down and then we come in and we sit down and you're like, hey, you know what? We would love to strike up a friendship between our two families. And they're like, oh, a friendship. Oh, that's costly. You know what? So that's going to be about two cows. We're like, oh, okay. All right. That's what it takes. And then so we state our case and they're like, oh, man, that's a hard thing that you're asking because uh, Pam, for example, is one of our favorite daughters. Right. (laughs) And I don't know how true it is because all the other sisters were sitting right there. But here we are. And so because of that, her mother really put a lot into raising her. And I think her mother is going to ask for two cows. Right. For honor or something like that. And then it's like, okay, And then they're like, yeah, but she's also the beloved of her brother's. So for the brothers losing a sister, it is going to be however many cows. And so they factor in everything of value. And this is also because, as you taught me, her brothers, part of their job was to protect and keep her safe as she was growing up. Absolutely. Tommy, everything about it is community. Ubuntu, the core essence of Ubuntu states the fact that no person is an individual. Your existence is for the enrichment of the greater organism, the culture, right? The family dynamic, the family or whatever it is. And we understand that nobody ever grows up by themselves. Nobody ever makes it by themselves, right? So for example, another area where we had to pay for cows was the fact that, so back then, Pam had a career. She was an ER nurse. She has a degree, right? I mean, she was very savvy with finances. She didn't have any debt. She had everything paid off. So I had to honor them for that, for teaching her good financial skills and self-leading. The fact that she didn't have any scandal, she didn't have any kids. So all of that, they say, is because she had a good support system around her, sibling support system. And so because of that, that's when the brothers got to do something because they protected her. The sisters, right, also spoke sense into her and protected her from going astray and from bad friendships. So they also get a cut. Oh, if they get to name how many cows they want when it comes to that. So, yeah, it's a very, very interesting process. It was fascinating to me, Reward. It was almost like a negotiation, except Uh what I took away from it, what you had going for you is that even though this is supposed to be a kind of an independent negotiation, they knew Pam likes you Uh and they liked you and they knew that the father-in-law liked you. In fact, that's why you had to cut off all social ties with your future father-in-law was that you had 
someone who already had these good feelings about you. And so you had to end that so that he couldn't bias the process toward you. Absolutely. But that was certainly going for you. And so my understanding is at the end of it, if they really like you, Mm -hmm. then even if the price is, I'm just going to make this up, but even if the price is 10 cattle, then they may let you in with a smaller kind of initial payment, like a down payment. And then you can pay off the other cattle as you go. And and instead (laughs) of cattle, it's actually cash. Yeah. Dude, you nailed it. I keep telling these people, Tommy's got some Africanism in him, man. You get this at such a fundamental level. So here's the thing. You cannot negotiate the value that the family places on what it took for them to raise your good wife. So the only point of negotiating, yeah, you can't be like, nah. I have to interject because I yeah. can't imagine sitting there. Well, I don't think I don't think this sister spoke enough sense exactly. into her. And I don't think this brother did. I mean, that is not a negotiation no, I want to have. No. It's really a fixed price. Yes. You hope they're coming to you with a reasonable fixed cost. But if you think about it, though, right, let's think about it, Tommy. Cost is subjective, right? I mean, in basic economics, right, what determines the price of something is what someone is willing to pay for it. So within the cultural context, we bake that into it to where there is no negotiation. I know what it took for me to raise my sister. I know what it took to protect my sister. I know what it took. I know the sacrifices that I went through to raise your good wife. So there is no negotiation there. But the cool thing is, here's where they leave you room for negotiation. So the first thing is after that, they say, okay, so the total is 15 cows, for example, right? But we evaluate every cow at $1,000. So basically what you owe us is 15 grand in cash for 15 cows. At that point, you cannot negotiate the value of what it took for them to raise what they've asked for. But you can for sure negotiate and go, uh, I don't know where you guys are getting these cows, but where I come from, cows are 200 bucks a pop. And then they go, yeah, but those are those janky cows from San Antonio. I'm talking about the Dallas cows that are about 800 bucks a pop. And you're like, yes, but then, so what you get to negotiate on is the value of each cow to bring the price down because now you're not negotiating the value of a person, but the value of the object representative of that value. And you can go to town all day on that. So that's where the actual negotiation exactly. happens. It makes sense. Yes. It makes sense. I mean, and I'm sure our listeners hearing this are like, oh, it makes total sense. <laughs> yeah. you don't negotiate on how much effort they put into raising a great daughter. You negotiate on what is the actual price of a cow mm-hmm. today? So remember I said there's two aspects of negotiation. So the first part is that it's the value of each cow. But the second part that kind of helps offset it is how much you have to pay on the front end before you can go on with the wedding. Because they're not expecting you to pay all 15 grand, all 15 cows on the front end. But there is a basic, we need these things covered Like, for example, remember, if mom said two cows, we're like, we need mom and dad taken care of and the siblings. Then there's all the other things you can do that. So you can negotiate how much 
needs to be on the front end, the value of the cows and how much needs to be on the front end, then how much until the firstborn. So the end of it, when everything has to be paid off is when you guys want to have kids, because until I've paid that off, the daughter still belongs to the family. She still belongs to the father. So that means if we have kids, then that firstborn would belong to the dad. You see what I'm saying? So for example, I'll be like, if they're like, okay, 15 grand and we're like, okay, we're like, okay, well, that's a little steep, but here's what we can do. Yes, we will agree that a cow is worth $1,000, but what we would like to do is at least pay four cows today or four cows before we can move on with the wedding and then the remaining however many cows before they have their first kid. So those are the two aspects of the negotiation, which are up in the air. And that's why it was me and my brother and you bring an expert negotiator. That is the third aspect of what that looks like. And so it's a beautiful thing, man. It's so much fun. There's so much intimacy and you build some really, really good friendships around the process. So reward, this has just been absolutely fascinating. I love hearing about other cultures and I also appreciate it's not just that part of your culture that you know, leads to this beyond the ordinary proposal experience, Mm -hmm. but also has really helped frame why you are so passionate about leadership. Mm -hmm. And so I do want to make sure we get a little bit of time today to talk on, you know, where that passion comes from and some of the most important things you have helped educate other people on as it relates to building leadership Mm -hmm. in their own lives. Mm -hmm. And you know, Tommy, I think the reason that this was such a pleasant experience, actually the very reason that I was able to connect with this man, as I mentioned earlier, was because both of us understand at a core and fundamental level that a lot of the issues facing the African continent right now stems from failed leadership, right? You can get away with anything except bad leadership. We've seen multi-million dollar corporation in any and every context fail based on bad leadership. So when we met, that was the first thing that we were talking about, brainstorming with this man and going, how can we build solid and viable leaders within the African context, which will then empower people to rise up right above the doldrums of the poverty that they inherited because a lot of African and third world context poverty is generational. And if something is generational, generational taboos have gatekeepers, right? There's people that are keeping those things in place, which is the leadership. And so when the leadership is right, when the leadership is in the right place, when the leadership is enlightened, they become empowering. And that's essentially how you shift the culture of what that looks like. So, To me, man, when we speak about leadership, when we speak about empowerment, it's something that I'm really passionate about because not only did it give me a wife, but I feel like it's a calling that I have for the rest of my life to empower people to be great leaders of their communities, their families, and even themselves. And that's something that's hard because people are coming up, they're, you know, growing up, we grow up in this state where you know, we go through a really selfish phase mm-hmm. as we're trying to figure out our place in the world. Yeah. And people that come out of that and happen to find themselves in leadership positions, a lot of times when it happens, it's not necessarily because they're born these natural leaders. It's a lot of times they were somewhere first. Yeah. Maybe they were just, they hired into the company before somebody else did. That's right. Maybe it's because somebody liked them. Yeah. 
You know, and a lot of times what happens, especially in the business world, is mm-hmm. somebody gets really, really good at a technical profession. That's right. They're a great technician. And so they get promoted into a manager role. We call that the Peter principle. <laughs> yeah. They get promoted into a management role that they're not ready for because the skills to be a great technician are usually not the same skills to be oh, this no. great manager. No. So- One of the things I always love to encourage our listeners about is the studies are out there. They're concluded. The studies are very clear. Leadership can be learned. It can be built. It can be practiced. It's like a muscle you work. If you work at it, you can get better at it. And I'm Mm -hmm. so thankful. That means there's hope for me (laughs) because (laughs) I, I still need that hope. Yeah. But- It is something that can be learned and developed. Most great leaders did not just pop up and start as great leaders. And you know, Tommy, it just ties into that age old question, right? A great leader is born or made, right? It's it's classic Shakespeare, right? He's like, hey, some people, you know, are born great, some achieve greatness and some have greatness thrust upon them. I mean, you can literally replace the greatness with leadership, And um, you have a true to form. And I think for the most part, if you think about it, right, favor or great relational skills with people will always put you in a position to where people are like, hey, I will put you over specific people. And so it never matters how you achieve or attain that leadership position. What matters is the fact that in any leadership context that you are in, if you do not continually develop yourself you will not only fall behind, but you will be the bottleneck and be a huge disservice to that particular position. That means there's nobody. I don't care if you're an incredible leader. Like we see this in a lot of historic leadership, right? This guy, he is like, you know, I'm talking about the British. He is a war general, right? He is incredible, man. He has all these amazing stories and he can rally the troop and he leads all of the UK through a world war, right? And then as soon as it's done, they're like, your skill set is the wrong skill set to move forward, right? And so they essentially um, don't let him continue because you can have the type of leadership in one particular context and it's the only thing that will work. But after that, when the context shifts, then all of a sudden it's like, oh my goodness, you're not the right person for this. So I just want people to never rest on their laurels and think because I was a great leader of GE, right? Like, you know, Jack, I will be a phenomenal leader of this other company over here. Completely different times and epochs require different leadership. Absolutely. Absolutely. And especially we live in a society that is just rapidly, rapidly changing. Mm -hmm. Culture is changing. Society is changing. The workplace is changing. A great example of this, a friend and I were talking just last week, one third of his company, this is a technology firm, massive technology firm. Mm -hmm. One third of the company threatened to quit when they asked their people to start coming back into the office one to two days a week on the other side of the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so that is a type of leadership challenge that nobody four years ago could have fathomed we would be having Mm -hmm. as we 
work with our employees, our customers, all these things. Yeah. But today, that's a very real type of <laughs> issue. And so continuing to evolve as culture shifts, yeah. but staying true to the things that matter most. Yeah. You know, reward, that's one of the things I know you're passionate about is, is really having that core fundamentals mm-hmm. that never change, yeah. but then being adaptable to culture and society in the places that it's okay to adapt. Absolutely. And so if, if someone were coming to you, you know, a young leader and they're saying, reward, I want to do a better job building my company. I want to do a better job serving our people and our customers. I want to be a better leader. Mm-hmm. What would those core fundamentals look like? for you if you were coaching them? Yeah, Tommy, that's a great question, man. You ask incredible questions. I think the first thing, Tommy, is context, right? Understanding your leadership context. There are specific contexts that I can never develop my leadership skill set beyond. Like, listen, I don't care who coaches me. I don't care if it's Dr. J, Michael Jordan, or LeBron James coaching me every single day. I will never make the NBA. You know why? Because it's just not my context, right? I'm not athletically skilled as some people may be. Now, if you put me in a different context, like maybe the church context, or if you put me in a corporate leadership context, right? Within that, I can develop myself, right? To the point of being the best at what I do, because everything about that specific context is consistent with my wiring and my gift set, from God. So the first thing I want to say is just because I know we've been taught this within reason that you can be anything, you can achieve anything and you can, yes. But the first thing that you need to lock in is the context. What comes to me naturally? What gives me life? Right? Because the reward for leadership is never the corner office and getting to the top. The reward is finding peace and accomplishment in the process. And we see this, Tommy, when people are in the middle of what they were born to do, right? It's every victory is sweet, right? Even the challenges are welcomed and these people never burn out and they have an infinite amount of energy. And that energy, I think, is the secret sauce to leadership. When you are so enamored with what you do that you create this attractive gravity, right? To where people are like, hey, I'm drawn to the enjoyment that that person has. When they speak about the things that we can do within this particular thing, we believe them. That's what, I don't know if I mentioned it before, but Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill had everything that it took to be a wartime general, right? I mean, we see this even with Lincoln. We see this with a lot of these great leaders within the political arena. They could galvanize and rally people when there was a national crisis happening. But those are the wrong people, right? When everything is going good, because if you're a soldier, you will always look for a fight. But if you're a builder, you know what I'm saying? You will always look for what's to build. So the context, I think, is the most important. Then the second thing, Tommy, is like, What do I find the most joyful? What brings me the most life? When you find that thing, if there is not a market and you lean into that, you will be the market. You will create the market for it. And if you are going to do the hard work of development, because development is hard, it's counterintuitive to who we are as humans. If you're going to do the hard work of development, do it within the context that empowers you for simply being in that particular thing. 
right? It's like this one thing that people talk about. They're like, hey, as a leader, do you pour money and effort in your weakness, into developing your weaknesses, or do you put everything that you have into developing what you're the best at and then show your weaknesses and everything? I'm like, absolutely. It's very discouraging to keep trying to figure out whatever your weakness is. The reason that we have a weakness, right? Because remember, humanity is a modular organism. We all bring something to the mix. I'm weak in an area, Tommy, because you're strong in that area. So if I let you become the strength in my weakness, then I can be stronger in an area and then show someone else's weakness. So when we look at leadership, even as you rise up in leadership, look at it organically. Look at everything. Look at the context as an organism and find the thing that brings you the most life, man, and pour every penny of development into being the best at what that thing is. So listeners, let me unpack a little bit of what Reward has said, because we're really getting into management philosophy here. Mm -hmm. Do you spend your time trying to make up for the deficiencies or weaknesses that people have in certain skills or abilities or talents, or do you focus on the talents that they have and really go full Mm -hmm. boat into those and then put people around them to help mitigate the areas where they're not as strong. I don't even mm-hmm. want to call them deficiencies or weaknesses. Yeah, That's the wrong context. And here's what I can tell you from a management philosophy listeners, results are back. Again, the results are already in. The research shows really, really clearly we get a lot more bang for our buck mm-hmm. economically by investing into people's strengths That's and right. making them even stronger That's right. than we ever get investing into people's areas that they're not very strong, hoping that they're going to turn the tide and become strong in Mm -hmm. those areas. And we see this a lot where people want to just push into, oh, you got to be better at this, this, this. It's like, no, if we can just invest in the places that are already really strong, Mm -hmm. we get a way better outcome. The exception I'd make is as someone is learning a new skill Mm -hmm. and It doesn't mean that if they don't already have that skill, we never invest in teaching them that skill. If they're a quick learner Mm -hmm. and they could pick it up, then of course we want to go continue to develop those things. Tommy, you speak to something. And thank you so much for making that distinction because I don't want people to hear what we're not saying, right? Diversity and uh, versatility is still a very admirable trait within the workplace, when you're able to do a lot of things and do them well. This thing that we're talking about, though, is about excelling. It's about being the guy at the top. When you think about it, any competitive arena, right, in any competitive sport and whatever it is, they are people who it's almost like diversity then becomes a handicap at the top. We want people that specialize, right? You don't get a guy going to the Olympics and saying, man, I do it all. You know, I'm the best. You know, I'm a run, you know, 100 meters from here. Then I'll be playing for the U.S. basketball team over there. It's like, no, we want the guy who has put in his 10,000 hours in being the best at free throws. Like, I remember when I first came to the U.S., Tommy, I was watching and I could not understand. There's this guy and this guy's name was Shaq. And any time this guy got a free throw, Tommy, what would happen with with, with Shaq and free throws? Oh, he'd miss it. He would miss it. It was guaranteed. It would break it. You know what I'm saying? Or air balls. It's like, 
And it's the worst. And everybody knew it. Even he himself knew it. But when it came to what Shaq did, there was nobody, right, that did defense or that could slap balls out of people's hands like Mutombo or Shaq or whatever it is. So in the highest levels of being competitive, where it's the best of the best, right, we don't need your diversifying your skill set. We want you specializing on that. But to the rest of our followers, as you're building yourself up, as you're coming up the ranks and up the rungs of leadership development and management and everything, you are going to have to master the art of diversifying to where I can do this and I can do that. But there's this one thing that I do, and this is the one thing that I'm known for. So thank you so much, Tommy, for separating those two things specifically. Yeah, absolutely. Reward, I love what you've said that, you know, there is this point where we specialize as we get kind of closer and closer to the pinnacle of wherever we may be headed in whatever field we may be involved in. But another part that you've taught me is that there are aspects of leadership that are cultural Mm -hmm. and to not shy away from that, to actually use that as a strength. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, Tommy, I said it before, and I want to double down on this. Like our sociology, right, informs everything about who we are, our culture, our heritage, our history. All of that stems from the exact same place. My passion for leadership was because culturally I saw leadership basically just played out or modeled in incredible ways. If you think about it, right, a lot of ancient or developed or mature civilizations within the American context, right, there were the pioneers and then there were the leaders. And so there's always somebody that stands up and by holding on to their value systems, which echo across the hearts of whoever is represented within that culture, that community, and then they rise up to the top and they do that. So for me, There are three things specifically, which when we tie into my cultural upbringing, into my sociology and to the things which are essentially Ubuntu, right? The things that speak to the core of my identity. And the first is community, right? Tommy, if you understand, so basically if I were to subtitle this, I would say three major lessons from Ubuntu, the social philosophy of Ubuntu. The first is that all of us, Humanity is a family. And this also echoes, and I'll get to it on the third part of it, right? As people, Zimbabwe, it's considered a Christian nation and it subscribes to a lot of Judeo-Christian values. And the reason that the Christian faith was able to have such deep roots within a lot of Southern African contexts is because it came telling the story of a father and a son who wanted a worldwide family. And so that narrative echoes very deeply in the hearts of a lot of ancient cultures, because a lot of ancient cultures understand the communal contribution and value of people within the context of community, right? It's why when you look at a lot of other places in the world, it's why socialism and communism is able to take such deep roots in specific things. When you discern the cultural ethos and the family structure, you'll understand that those people highly value family. That's why, for example, the mafia, as bad as it is, is able to thrive in specific cultural contexts and not others, because within the Sicilian right culture, family is everything. So therefore, the first thing I want to say is, Tommy, you have a gift. 
that the rest of the world needs and doesn't have. I have a gift that the rest of the world needs and doesn't have. Listeners, listen to me. If you're listening to me right now, the reason that you're listening to me is because there's something in you about this podcast that resonated because you know that there's something in you that is outside of the ordinary. And if you raise and train yourself up in leadership, then you will have something to contribute to the greater narrative. So that's the first thing. Everything. When I'm developing my skills, it's not about me or making more money or me rising to the top. It's about the simple fact that that I then get to turn around and make the entire culture, the entire country, the entire company better. And that's the first thing I want to say, Tommy. If you have a perspective on community, you will always rise to the top, right? And then the second thing that I want to speak to is discipline. And what I mean by that is the simple fact that in any art, mastery mandates a specific lifestyle, right? If you want to be the best at anything that you do, not everything is going to be a go for you, right? That means you're going to discipline yourself around good health because when you sleep enough and you drink enough water and everything, then your mind is optimized to make the very best decisions. And remember, not to benefit you, but to benefit the whole, right? That's the foundation, right? When you understand that, you're like, hey, me starving myself from this cocoa, keeping myself from this Coca-Cola with this sugar, which is going to cloud my judgment, it's a small price to pay, right? For me, to discipline myself, because if I do this, then tomorrow a thousand people will gain from the clarity of mind that I bring to the meeting or to the conversation. When you constantly live with the other person in mind, right, then you will be like an ancient philosophy within the Christian concept, like the central figure to the Christian faith, Jesus Christ said this. He said, hey, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it cannot, right, give birth to more. And he was speaking to an agrarian society. These were people that understood what he was saying. And he was using farming terminology and basically saying, if I discipline myself, then more people benefit from what that essentially looks like. And on your path to leadership, you will have to be someone that truly disciplines yourself so that other people can gain. And then the third thing, which is central to everything is faith, man, belief. You got to believe in something, Tommy. You got to believe in something greater than yourself because there are going to be moments and there are going to be days to where you've done everything that you can and you put everything that you can in there and you just have to hope, right? You just have to pray that there is something greater than me that is moving on my behalf and that favors me and that loves me. And for me, the most logical was the Christian faith. It wasn't anything like spooky or whatever. It was a simple narrative, right? That within the Christian faith and within the Christian context, there was a leader who so loved me in my mess, right? That he sent his son to literally show me the path to a greater leadership, the leadership of my life and of myself. And that the only thing that it requires me is that I turn around and then I live my life for the benefit and the betterment of others. But good, bad, or otherwise, that, Tommy, is a philosophy that I feel very comfortable, not just giving my life to, but inviting others into the knowledge of this particular leader, his son, and the sons that he is raising. So for me, it's those three things, man. It's the community, it's discipline, and it's a belief system in something greater than you. I love that. And Reward, thank you. That is the most 
simplistic understanding of the Judeo-Christian worldview mm-hmm. that I think anyone has ever expressed to me before. Thank you, bro. I, I love that concept of, you know, a father sending his son for me. Mm-hmm. My part is to turn around and take care of others. That's right. And that's such a great way to explain it. And certainly contrary to what some people may understand about the Judeo-Christian worldview because of the way they've been treated by others. Mm -hmm. I always have to remind myself that we look at Jesus. We don't look at people because they're not going to be a perfect representative of his love. That's exactly right. And you know, Tommy, I think what's interesting is every single listener here right, has a specific thought or idea against a specific company. For example, there's people here who are like, I hate Apple, right? And the reason they hate Apple is because they met an employee from Apple that treated them in such a way to where they were just like, I'm going to paint the entire organization in the wrong light. Because followers have the ability to either redeem the perspective of someone when it comes to the entire company or to completely taint it forever. And that's why I love what you just said about that, Tommy. When it comes to whatever faith or the Christian faith, right, even within the Muslim faith, there are people who are extremists, right, and who misrepresent the core ethos and the beliefs of what that looks like. Even in the Christian faith, there are people who claim to be Christian, but their value systems and uh, the way they communicate and the way they live their lives makes people go, well, then if that's how they live, I don't want anything to do with the entire Christian faith. But when you look at the founder of the faith, when you look at the life of Jesus as shown through the Bible, you will notice that that person's actions were inconsistent with the values and the love, the kindness and the forgiveness that this Jesus has for his people. So both in leadership, in life, and in the faith, look at the people that represent the core ethos of what that looks like. And don't just look at normal people and what they do or do not do. That's so helpful. And reward, this takes us to my favorite part of the show where Uh I get to ask two questions. (laughs) Let's go. The first question is the question that everybody wants to know. And really, it's the question I want to know. Although... In this context, this may be the first question ever that everybody actually does want to know. So I'm excited about it. Uh And then then I'll give you our last question, which is the real question that everybody wants to know. So here's my question for you today, Reward. Mm -hmm. Is it okay if I ask how the negotiation (laughs) on the whole cattle thing actually (laughs) turned out? <laughs> Absolutely, man. Actually, if I was listening to this too, Tommy, that's what I would want to know. I'm like, when's Tommy going to ask him? Like, how much was his wife worth? So initially, it was 16 cows, Tommy. But we were able to talk down the value and everything to the equivalent of 10 cows. So basically, yeah, 10 grand is where it all ended up. So, but we weren't negotiating on the value of your wife being 10 cows instead of 16 cows. We were just negotiating. They were starting basically saying that the price was maybe 
fourteen hundred dollars exactly. per cow, uh-huh. and you got it down to a thousand per cow. Boom. And so that's where we end up at ten thousand dollars. Yes, and then the follow up question: Now that I understand the culture, is are you allowed to have children yet? <laughs> Meaning, have you actually paid back the full amount yet so that you could have children if you wanted to? I love that. Tommy is asking me this, y'all, because we're friends. So he knows that we're having a son in uh, February is when that happens. And that would not be happening if your boy had not paid his dues to honor this incredible family for raising that. So, yes, we are free and clear, baby. So <laughs> I cannot wait for your wife's family to Come hear on. this show. That is that is exciting to me. Thank you for sharing. And that takes us into the real question reward, which yeah. is. I'm sure we have some listeners that they say, wow, I really resonate with mm-hmm. this guy. I want to hear more from Reward. Mm-hmm. I want to follow him. I want to connect with his content. If someone wants to you know, get into your channels where they can say, I want to hear more from this man, mm-hmm. what is the best way for them to do that? Ah, thank you so much, Tommy. There's three ways primarily, and I'm going to list them by order of engagement. Right. I think my day to day, if you want to hear the thoughts and everything. So I do a lot of content videos where I just bring commentary to a lot of things that are happening. And it's through the lens of faith, because for me, that is what has encouraged me. So I turn around and I use it to encourage people. But if you follow me at reward, R-E-W-A-R-D, Sibanda, S-I-B-A-N-D-A. This may be in the show notes or that's going to be up to Tommy, but I know it's a complicated name to process. So if you follow me on social media, that's Facebook and Instagram at Reward Sabanda. And if you go on LinkedIn and just look up Reward Sabanda as well. So social media platforms are where there is the most engagement. And if they wanted to reach me, they could do that. I have a website to where there's a direct line for speaking or leadership development or all that. If they go to www.rewardsabanda.com, once again, I think it'll be spelled the way my name and last name is spelled. That's also the website, rewardsabanda.com. And then I'm developing this right now. So there's a few videos But by the time they probably hear this, I think it'll be well on its way. I don't know when you're going to drop this, Tommy. But if they go to YouTube and just type in my name, Reward Sabanda, it shows just a lot of different places that I've spoken at. And also Blackbird TV is the name of my my channel on there. So, yeah, those are the ways that I'm like, hey, you guys can be a part of this. So. That's excellent. And we will put as much of that in our show notes as we can. So whether you listen on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, if you just go check those show notes, you should be able to find most of those content places. And I would absolutely encourage you to check Reward out on those channels. Stay up to speed with his content. It's something I do. Uh, It's definitely a source of inspiration, hope, and encouragement for me personally. And I hope you will find it that way as well. Listeners, as always, we could not have this show without you. You've made it far better, far greater than we ever dreamed. And we're so thankful to have you. And Reward, we're thankful you were with us here today. And listeners, we'll see you right back here next week on Beyond the Ordinary. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. 
You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.com.